listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Thursday, and today you'll hear an episode from our Takeover series. Every month, we ask a different practitioner or thought leader to host a series of interviews that cover a specific theme that's relevant to our community. And like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. The guest I have today, I have been looking forward to talking to for a long time and our schedules have finally lined up and we're making it happen. Um, what to say? I have so many things to tell you about her to get you intrigued to want to listen to the episode. But let me just start by saying she is a, she is a marketing and sales thought leader to thought leaders, right? So people who are teaching people are learning from her. She, I, we've gone to the source here. This is the source episode. Um, the revenue-driven SaaS marketing executive with, with a real core in demand gen and awareness. Everything from the freemium to the public, the M&A, the mid-market, small business, across the whole gamut. We're going to talk about strategies that, that it can apply to many of those things today. Uh, co-author of The Line to Achieve, How to Unite Your Sales and Marketing Teams into a Single Force for Growth. And she is a force to be reckoned with voted most feared by her peers in college, which we may find out the inside scoop <laughs> on that. Uh, most 15 influential women in B2B marketing tech, B2B demand marketing game changer, founding board member of Women in Revenue, need I say more, CMO of Inside View, Tracy Eiler. Welcome to the show. Hey, Casey, thank you so much for the invitation. And I know, I think we've been trying to get this on the calendar for like an entire year. So I'm really happy that we're talking. I think so. And you know what the challenge is that the longer we wait, the more things that you have to talk about and the more things we have to discuss. And it's all around everything from data to alignment to when things are changing in the future, how do we adapt and, 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 and match our funnels to, to make sense of all of this. So I just want to get right into it. And the way I do that, I need to pass you something real quick through the virtual program we have here. Okay. It's heavy, but I think you got this. Ugh. Okay. Here you go. Thor's hammer. You got it? I got it. There you go. Okay. Take Thor's hammer and smash for me some kind of marketing myth, bogus strategy, misconception. Just set the record straight once and for all. The myth that I would love to bust is that we have to live with dirty marketing and sales data. Every company I've ever worked for, you know, marketing and sales has lamented about dupes and issues related to completeness of their records and so on. And we have all just kind of come to learn to live with it. And it is a myth that needs to be debunked. Um, I have some recent research that I did that was based on that, the book that you mentioned. I've run the same research three times now. And earlier this year, we asked marketing sales and ops folks, um, you know, to rank their different business problems and, um, and what they wanted to work on. And we asked how high a priority is it to improve your CRM and marketing data in 2020 and 2021. And 71% ranked it very highly. Okay. And, you know, it's a big priority that people are working on and it's actually possible to do something about it. So that's the myth. It's kind of a boring one, honestly, Casey. I'm sort of embarrassed to call on it, but it's so foundational to our success for all of the things that we want to do, especially account-based pursuit. Well, I think sometimes we just need to get it shaken up a little bit and shaken around because, you know, we take it for granted, right? I think not only do we take data for granted, but we also 
to your point, feel like almost we should be just living and accepting of. Yeah, it's a mess and it's always going to be a mess. And so we're just going to work around it because that's what we've always done. Right. Right. But it's a high priority. So uh it's a priority, but if nothing happens Mm -hmm. this quarter or next quarter or this year, like, well, it's a, it's too big of a struggle, right? It's just too much. Yeah. And people think it's way too hard. um, But the fact of the matter is when you start running value numbers and in fact, I'll send you a link for the show notes. We've come up with some value calculators on what it's really costing in terms of inefficiency and incompleteness and problems in your pipeline. It, it, the time is now to really fix it. Sales and marketing leaders need to wake up and realize how much it's really hurting them. It's not just an annoyance. It's actually costing you quite a bit. It's I almost like hate to look at that number because I'm sure that calculator is going to show me that like I'm actually burning dollars hundreds and thousands of dollars. Oh yeah. I mean, I can tell you one calculation we did just on our own SDR team using, using 10 SDRs with a 20% inefficiency measure, um, you know, trying to hunt around and, uh, and, and dedupe and merge records and all of that kind of stuff. Um, we found that, you know, if we were to improve that, we would recapture, I got to look up the number, I think it was 8 million in pipeline on a year and 1.6 million in revenue, um, you know, just using a conservative win rate. So you do that simple math and you kind of go, holy crap, like kind of a lot really of money. better <laughs> work on this. It's kind of a lot of money. Exactly. Um, and you know, if you added, if you started factoring in the inefficiency actually for your sellers, I was just talking about SDRs. It just gets even worse. Right. So I'm, I imagine now. That's it's one of the groups too. You're like, oh, SDRs, I'm sure they're not costing us too much. Actually, there's a whole bunch of pipe here, uh, and at least a cool million in revenue, or if not more. And yep. that's just with 10. The companies with more than that, yep. double it or more. Yep. Totally. So why do we think it's so hard? If it's not so hard, why, why are we kind of just living with it? Yeah. You know, um, we asked that question in this research, like, what are you doing about it? So you say it's yeah. important, but what are you doing? And more than half the people are addressing it manually or in an <laughs> ad hoc fashion. Uh, cause they just don't know. So I, I personally think the root issue is it, it's been something we've lived with forever. So it's kind of like, all right, you know, it, it's just one of those things we overlook. Secondly, I think people think it's very hard. Um, you know, to improve your data. And all we're talking about here is simple things like deduping, enriching all of the account records so that your firm graphics are up to date. We're talking about building out the people and keeping track of the people, which is really tough, especially with today's unemployment rates and the turnover that's in the market. So those are the kinds of things we're talking about. They're not really aware of what tools to use, but I think ultimately, Casey, everyone thinks it's someone else's problem, right? So as CMO, I want to be a customer of a good database. Sales isn't going to work on this problem. They want to be the customer of the good database. And ops, who, you know, technically owns the CRM and the marketing automation systems, they're busy executing and doing other things, right? Right. So what I'm trying to do is really educate sales and marketing about the impact about what they're losing, but also what they could gain so that we do get it to be a priority on the ops team. And then it's a matter of ongoing process and good tools. It's, it's, it's not that hard, but the perception is that it's hard. And, you know, so getting ownership around it, I think is really important. You know, ownership is a funny thing. I, I, I can even think of one example, and even in my own company at one point when we, will, we were all kind of like owning marketing, but mm. Like, and it's kind of like when everyone's owning it, no one's owning it, right? Totally. Like, but we feel good because we all own it, but not, not, nothing would get done. And it wasn't until we had someone who was owning it 
we're, oh, wow, look, we're actually getting a lot of things done. And she's a rock star. But at the same time, like, yeah. because someone is just saying like, oh, no, this is my planning the flag. It's my thing. So yeah. it sounds like it's up to marketing to do that because everyone else. I think so. Their own. I, I, I think so. I mean, I think yeah. it's up to marketing to drive a lot of things because sales is singularly focused on the quarter that's ahead of them. Right. And, you know, they're not going to look any other way. They have to be chasing that revenue and focus and ops is going to be reactive. And especially you get, my gosh, to the last month of the quarter or the last two weeks of the quarter, Mm -hmm. they're helping sales close deals. So I think marketing has to be very thoughtful about what's needed for all of the go-to-market teams, customer success included in this, right? Um, And as you start looking at account pursuit, and notice I'm not saying ABM, I'm saying account pursuit, because it really is across all those personas. When you start getting into that, the data issues get even gnarlier. Um, so I really think marketing has to lead the charge on, on what should happen. It, it truly does. Um, and I do want to get into account pursuit because that sounds controversial and fun. Uh, before we do, you had mentioned ongoing process and tools. As, is that the way out? Is that how we... So we, it's not hard because Tracy says it's not and we're learning about it. <laughs> either, but like, is, is the answer then the, the ongoing process and tools? Could you talk to those? Yeah, totally. I think, I think before all that, of course, you need a diagnosis. So just like when you go to the doctor and you have some symptoms, right? You need a diagnosis of how bad is it? Like there's, isn't anyone in your organization is going to say your CRM and marketing automation data is good. No one's going to say that. Right. Everyone's going to say it sucks. It's a problem. <laughs> so we know that. So it's just a question of how bad is it? So right. doing a sort of data diagnosis health check, we in fact do that with our customers all the time to help them understand where they are today. And then sometimes you do a one-time cleanup, you know, that often is a service-oriented thing. You don't have to, but for bigger companies, often you want to, especially if you have multiple instances. Like we have some big customers where they might have 10 CRM instances and guess what? They're not all the same technology. Mm -hmm. There might be some dynamic CRM and some Salesforce in the same company because of M&A. So first of all, knowing what you've got, doing a diagnosis, doing a cleanup if you need to, like a one-time cleanup. But then there's tools and process you can put in place. We happen to sell products like this, so I don't want this to be an inside view commercial. Yeah, no. There are many choices of technology you can put in place that make sure, for example, that all your firmographic data is up to date, the employee count, the revenue count, and so on. Um, So so that's a, a kind of ongoing refresh thing. And then there's process things like lead to account mapping. Sounds simple. But, you know, we all know that in account pursuit, there's multiple buyers in a buyer group and you might have five or six of those people that are already in your database that have opted into your communication. But then the seventh and the eighth and the ninth person might come inbound as an example. And you need to make sure that they are linked up and this technology can do this for you to the right account so that then sales rep knows, oh, gosh, there's more people I can talk to. Right. So some of those things are, you know, they, they sound simple, but they do require attention from you know, smart people who have the right tools and process. Right. Got it. Got it. It makes sense, right? Because otherwise you, you treat them like a stranger. Yeah. You do yes. a little coffee yes. shop behind you for sure. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and then by the way, for tools, I, I know you didn't want to turn it into an infomercial, but like I'm, I'm a big fan, right? Inside view is just, mm-hmm. you know, we had done the same thing out. See, I can make it an infomercial and it's okay. Um, but you know, we had the same kind of issue where we had data that we just assumed would, stay bad forever. And then you just, the magic of a little bit of process change and a little bit of tools. And now you, you can start leveraging it, right? Because beforehand, what, what happens if you try to send email to everyone in a certain industry? Well, you know, maybe half the people that are in that industry, but the other ones aren't tagged. They're not, you know, and right. 
you could do a call down campaign on sales, but they've got bigger fish to fry. So it's like, is there an answer? And then when you find out it's actually doesn't require rocket science to get it. I mean, that, yeah, that, we call um, this data integrity. We launched a product about a year ago called Inside View Data Integrity, and it will do that diagnosis for you. Has a nice visual layer to tell you how bad it is. Yeah, um, and then you know we'll hook up to do some of the things we talked about. There's some other tools in the market, but of course we think ours is the best. But you know the point is you can you can work on this problem, right? It is not right. something that anybody has to keep living with, and they shouldn't if they're going to be you know truly capturing all the revenue that's available to them. Right. And you had said manual earlier and I laughed and I didn't want people to feel insulted. But for me, when I, when I hear manual, I tend to think like it probably won't continue to happen. You know, like it may or may not, it's manual. It's, it's left up to almost to chance sometimes. And well, I know CMOs who hire summer interns, literally, and, and really like well-known CMOs in SaaS who hire summer interns to do data cleanup and, uh, and, you know, account research, and <laughs> you know, tying leads and accounts together wow. and things of that nature. And it's, a, it's like a cheap way to do it because right. the marketer doesn't, in this case, have a partner that's going to, you know, help them do it. So they're taking it, taking it into their own hands in a way that they can solve. You know, it's funny, every summer, those guys and gals, their campaigns get really productive and, and their, their stats go up as their data gets accurate. Yeah, and everybody it, goes back to college and then it goes back down to... again and everyone waits for their, oh, those summer campaigns are the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, data's like a river. I like that analogy, right? Like it's yeah. never going to be perfect. It's always going to be partly wrong. And there's um, my colleague, Gordon, who runs our content. Um, he has this U.S. Census Bureau stat that, you know, this is pre-COVID, that your average adult in business in the United States changes jobs every four years. So, you know, you think about that, that means by definition, 25% of your contact data is incorrect every year. And, you know, now it's way worse than that. Um, And then same things with companies, right? Like, especially since COVID companies are, some companies are doing really poorly. Some are growing. It's, it's just a whole hellacious mess. Um, You know, so we really need to, uh, to take this problem um, and make it a priority. You know, it was eye-opening for me when I learned from you and your team around the fact, and again, this isn't, none of this is rocket science, but it needs to be brought to light. The fact that people move jobs. Well, what does that mean? Oh, we people move jobs. Who cares? You send a nice note on LinkedIn. No, it means that your data isn't, I'm, I, I'd kind of treat it, I think a lot of marketers treat it like a hoard of treasure. Like you, you <laughs> yeah. gather the treasure and sit on it like a dragon and then you don't have to worry about it and it just sits there like gold. But it doesn't. It's like constantly decaying. It, yeah. Like the moment it comes in, it's getting worse. Yeah. Person and might think about it this way too, right? Um, you're talking about people changing jobs. So say you have a champion at one of your accounts, right? And that champion leaves and she goes to another company. You want to know that really fast. And if you're super close yeah. personally, you might know, but she's probably not going to update her LinkedIn profile until she's well in her new seat, right? So sometimes there's this long delay. So, so two things, there's a risk in account A because she left and you might not have more relationships that matter. So shame on you, right? You need to make sure you get that going. But you have this amazing champion who goes to company B, man, wouldn't you like to be at her front door on day two and saying, Hey, I'm so excited to talk to you again. Is there anything we can do? So, you know, there's, there's an opportunity to, um, to advance, but then there's also revenue to protect when your champion leads. That's just a really tactical example, but you know, it's something that we've started to try and institutionalize the welcome champion in your new company campaign, but also making sure that we're not single threaded in key accounts. So true. I just little opportunities here and there. And otherwise, I mean, that's proactive, but otherwise you're waiting for 
them to reach out to you. Hopefully, you know, mm-hmm. brand new job. Are they going to reach out to you? Maybe, maybe in a couple of months, but like there's an opportunity there that you can right. waste. Yep. Now you mentioned account pursuit versus ABM. Mm-hmm. Is there, yeah. is there some subtle changes going on to the ABM world? Uh, I think so. Um, I think so. I, I, I'm hearing people talk about um, ABE, account-based engagement. I've heard that. I like to just use the pursuit word, um, which to me implies more than marketing tactics. It, in, it, it is assuming that there's a customer lifecycle um, that doesn't end when the customer, when the new customer signs the deal. It continues, mm-hmm. the account pursuit continues to make sure that that customer is onboarded, is getting value, that then earns you the right to have an upsell conversation, which then earns you the right to have an advocate conversation. Um, so there's a picture that I love. Um, and if you just imagine a sideways eight or the infinity symbol, um, find, engage, close and grow are the steps that I think about. I think of that as the new funnel. And you know we need to think about our account-based pursuit in that new funnel. So it's not only targeting new logo accounts that we think fit our ideal customer, but then also carries it through as they're a customer. And it's not just sales and marketing now, it's also customer success and customer experience, depending on how you're organized, right? So in our company, we have account managers that manage a book of business, a a Mm -hmm. book of accounts, and they have a, a CSM, customer success person, who's there to make sure that customer is fully successful. And all those touches matter. And from the customer's perspective, you know, we are one entity. Um, you know, we think about them sometimes in our siloed functions and we got to stop right. that. So I think that's what's in this engagement word or in this pursuit word. It's not just acts of marketing where we're figuring out some cool thing to direct mail somebody, right? Or some targeted advertising. It's got to be much more integrated and thoughtful than that. Yeah. Some of the struggles I've, I've seen around ABM, but even calling it ABE, but I, that's why I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of this again, thought leader to thought leaders. I wasn't mm-hmm. kidding earlier. Um, is, is it just a marketing game? You mentioned it's not just, you know, does marketing find some cute ways to reach out? You know, what, what role does sales play in account pursuit? Or what should yeah. sales play? Yeah. What, well, <laughs> I know later on, we're going to talk about, you know, stories from the past, but yeah. I bet you and other listener and, and your listeners have had this experience where sales literally writes on a napkin the accounts that they're going to go after and they give them to you. Like that's happened to me at least twice in my (laughs) career, right? Or the sales leader will get in a room with you on a whiteboard and say, oh, you know, here's the top 10 accounts we're thinking about. And, you know, and that's kind of where it ends. Those days are gone. So, you know, what happens today in, in healthy companies is that sales and marketing, usually partnered with someone in finance typically, are going to do an ideal customer profile analysis. And we're in fact refreshing ours right now, mm. where you take a look at your customer base and you see what they have in common, right? Yeah. And, and you pick some metrics. We like to look at the renewal number and the retention number or upsell number and, uh, and see who's stickiest. Because you, of course, can look at your customer base and say, okay, who was quickest to close um, yeah. and, and say, okay, those are the accounts we want. But then you're missing that annuity thing, especially in subscription mm. model, where you want to look at the lifetime value of an account. So just imagine a, a two by two matrix with renewal across the bottom and maybe the midpoint's 85%. And on the vertical axis is retention. And let's say that, you know, 105 to 120% is what you're wanting to bring back off that base every year and plot right. your customers and then see what you see, right? You might see industry trends, you might see tech use trends. So that's a collaborative effort that I think 
most companies don't spend enough time on. Mm. From that, you're going to get a good idea of new accounts to pursue. And, uh, and then you're also going to see risk potentially. Um, you know, if you might find a cluster um, of accounts that have a tendency to churn, which would tell you, hey, deprioritize those as new leads. So that kind of iterative strategic work, I think the CMO should drive in mm. partnership with the head of sales and, uh, and, and typically someone in finance. Sometimes you get a data scientist involved if your data set's really big. Um, we actually built a product called Inside View Apex to do this for us because, you know, four summers ago, we were um, basically killing ourselves over Excel sheets. I know, and, and it right? took like six months. Um, and, you know, what we can do now is essentially load ICP attributes and then using some artificial intelligence Apex will then tell us lookalike accounts to go after. Mm -hmm. So much more scientific and, and, uh, and, and quick. I so I think we, that's the first that. piece. We've used that recently ourselves. And it's, it's helpful because sometimes I think people get stuck on the find part of this funnel. Like, you do. what do we find? Don't we just want everyone? It's like, no, you don't want everyone. You want right. people that are more of the best ones. Um, right. In terms of the engagement, what, what kind of engagement do you expect from sales once you've found yeah. your your list? Yeah, it's a really good question. Let's take two, uh, two kinds of engagement or two buckets. First, there's a new logo and the other one is existing customer. Mm -hmm. So on the new logo side, what we have worked out collaboratively with our, our SDR leader, sales development leader, Kelsey, she's really leading the integrated conversation between marketing touches and sales touches. And then we just literally work out like on a whiteboard, okay, what do we want this account pursuit to look like? Let's assume it's 60 days. Let's assume there's um, you know, three personas we're going after and we want to have a certain number of personas included in each one. So then we're going to start sequencing, right? Where there's, you know, marketing is going to be doing kind of air cover emails and also targeted ads. You know, of course, we use our marketing automation system that you guys right. helped us deploy, Pardot. Um, uh, you know, and we are basically reaching out with interesting content about pain that we think that persona has. So it's not pitching our company it's, it's essentially teaching learning, like the data that we've been talking about that's in an ebook we'll put in the show notes called Unlocking Revenue Performance. That's an example. SDRs come into it with follow-up, and they're using um, a tool like Outreach uh, to layer on top additional touches. And mm -hmm. we will keep that um, engagement going in sales, or sorry, excuse me, in the SDR and the marketing team until we get to... Uh, a meeting of some sort. And then the AE, the account executive is going to come into that and they'll take over that nurturing and conversation. And the SDRs will keep trying to wake up additional people. Cause we know in our large accounts, I mean, we're six figures for a first deal. Typically there's 34 people on average engaging with wow. us. It blew my mind when we did that analysis. I mean, we know buyer groups are five, six people, right? But we started looking at how many people in a large deal are getting involved in 34 on average, which was like multiple personas, multiple levels. And, uh, and that really blew my mind. So marketing has to keep track of all that and make it visible to sales. I'm saying if, if you have some manual process to try to do lead to account matching, you're going to have, <laughs> you, you can do it with four maybe, but you just fail. Yeah. You just totally fail. You, you totally can't. Fail. Yeah. Yeah, when we wow. did that particular analysis, it was like four summers ago, Casey, and I remember it was a large bank that we had closed. It was like a $200,000 deal. And there, in that particular case, I think there were 42 different people that had been engaging with us. And of course, we knew all that because we looked inside our marketing automation and other tools. 
and I, I had the list and I went to the sales uh, rep who'd closed that deal. His name's Javier. And I said, Hey, who do you, what names do you recognize on this list? And he's like, Oh, I know her and him and her and him. And it was like five people. And he said, who are all these other people? <laughs> like, right. Well, and you look at their titles and they were, you know, analysts and coordinators and marketing managers and sales reps and a, you know, procurement analyst and stuff like that. He had no idea that they were engaging. So I'm like, shame on marketing for not making it visible to him. Because just imagine what he would have been able to do with that information. So that was very much a wake-up call and a um, uh, kind of instructions for marketing on the kinds of things we need to do to make sure that sales is really informed. Man, what a thing. Now, I started imagining marketing as it morphs and changes. If I guess if if marketing owned SDR, wouldn't that mean that this whole account pursuit is just really in the hands of marketing until it's time for a meeting? Could be. Um, and in our particular company, the sales development team does report into marketing. I'm oh. super passionate about okay. about owning that function for the reason that you say. Yeah. You know, getting close to pipeline. We are testing something though, where um, our enterprise uh, sales leader Damian really wanted to have about a hundred accounts for each one of his new AEs. He had done a tranche of hiring like five new people at the end of last year. And so what we did was we divided the list down the middle and we said, okay, SDRs, you're going to do your thing with these 50 AEs. You're going to do the same thing with these 50 and let's just see how it works. So, you know, and I was using that example before of, you know, marketing's providing air cover and the SDRs reaching out, just replace that with the AE um, and, and really testing to see how that goes. And I have to say the AEs appreciated the structure because mm. before that they were all kind of doing their own thing, testing out their own sort of prospecting best practices. And so this little incubator test really showed us what was the most successful and no surprise, we found out that our AEs were much better at getting to more senior people more quickly. Um, but our SDRs, had more fidelity for the process and actually doing the tasks when they needed to, um, <laughs> which isn't surprising, that. right? Right. I mean, you know, <laughs> AEs are pursuing closing deals. So right. I think it's actually better to keep the prospecting, the early prospecting in the hands of the SDRs. However, there are going to be a select number of accounts that the AEs are going to say, hey, I got to go after that because I have a previous relationship or whatever the case may be. But we got to watch it because as quarter goes by, those AEs get busy. They'll, they will drop the ball. They have to. They're not going to keep doing that nurturing. Um, and so that's something marketing has to watch out for. You know, what I love about you and your thought leadership is that on one hand, you're doing all sorts of research, but on the other hand, you're also able to try it out. And the fact that SDR is reporting in and you're trying different combinations. I know you've also done a lot of research around sales and marketing alignment um, recently, sort of rehash that. Any takeaways on what you're seeing um, from, from the stats and from... Yeah, the- yeah. yeah. So, so, so the book you mentioned that I co-authored with my VP of Enterprise Sales at the time, Andrea Austin, Aligned to Achieve, it came out in the fall of 2016. So it's four years old now. Okay. And, uh, and when we did that research, one of the things we did was we had a whole set of attitudinal questions where we asked the marketers what they thought about sales and, we, mm. and vice versa. And the big change that has happened um, from four years ago till now is that the, what I call affinity opinions, such as I like people on the other team. I am friends with people on the other team. I think their job is really hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, those have all gone way up. Um, but, but nevertheless, there are still some stereotypes that exist, which drive me freaking crazy. Um, the best one is that 
about a quarter of each group think they could do a better job at the function that the other people have. So what that means is, say you're the sales leader, 25% of the marketing people think they can do a better job than you. And 25% of the sellers in my company think they can do a better job at marketing than me, right? That's just crazy (laughs) to me. Like I can't do a better job than the sales folks. Um, You know, so that's a thing. The other one that's super annoying and and your listeners in marketing, I'll just roll their eyes. 60% of sellers think that marketing's primary job is branding and events. Pick colors and throw parties basically, right. right? Which is ridiculous, right? You said 60%? And 60, 60, yeah, oh my for real, like even four years later. So, I mean, so shame on us marketing, right? For not explaining our value and what we do more transparently uh, to sales in a way that they will understand, um, you know, so that's, that's a big one. And, yeah. um, and you know, and the, and the opposite is also true that a very high percentage, I think it was like 50% of marketing folks think that sales reps are bullies. And, you know, and, and have short attention spans. And, and if you believe that, of course, you're going to be afraid. You're not going to be trying to have meetings and talk openly. And what I always say is, hey, you know, if you think your sellers are bullies and they're, you know, uh, don't have any time for you, of course they don't, right? They have to pursue revenue. And what you perceive as bullying behavior, they're just trying to stay focused. You know, my husband is a sales leader and a sales VP and he always says the only thing that his team can control is their time. So mm-hmm. if they've got some marketing person yapping in their ear about getting feedback and it's towards the end of the quarter, of course they're going to ignore you. Right? <laughs> so I think marketing right. has to be Go, very sensitive. Yeah. yeah. Marketing has to be really sensitive um, and empathetic to what's going on. Yeah, for sure. Man. Um, yeah. I had a related question because I know you've done a lot of work in SaaS and do you, do you see that as a particular differentiator as a marketer, just challenges that the SaaS type um, companies and marketers face? Are there particular things to the SaaS or is it, is it more? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the first half of my career was all enterprise sales where, you know, you sell it one time and then you collect a maintenance fee every year. Mm -hmm. Um, So we were just always, always, always going after new logo, new logo, new logo. And, um, and, you know, that was kind of all we did. And I took my first job in SaaS in 2006 um, with a company called Postini, which was email anti-spam in the cloud. Mm. And, um, and, it, and it was the first time that I realized the power of the subscription um, annuity, right? And how stable it made you from a revenue perspective, True. but also how critical it was to make sure those companies were happy especially if your product was one that could easily be ripped out and replaced with something else. So for example, we were an Eloqua shop at the time. That's not the kind of product that you can rip out and replace you no, better than not. anybody given your business, right? But there are other tools that are pretty easy to just switch. So, you know, you need to really understand um, kind of what's at risk and marketers need to pay more attention to the customer base. And especially when it comes to upsell and expansion, because you think about, you know, half your revenue is going to be coming out of that renewal base and the other half is going to be coming out of new logo customers and upsell. So you kind of have to think more broadly about where the goals are and then work with your sales team on where you want to point your energy. Like as a suggestion, there's a question I like to ask periodically to our sales leaders and our CEO, which is, Mm. hey, if you had a hundred units 
of marketing energy. Notice I'm using the word energy because it's a combination of people, effort, and money. So you have 100 units. How would you prioritize new logo pursuit versus customer expansion? And, you know, increasingly used to be like 80% was new logo. Now it's more like 50%. And then the rest is spent on things like looking for upsell campaign opportunities, um, at customer advocacy type work, and even, you know, poking our nose into what happens to the customer after they sign. Um, and, you know, I have a suggestion for your listeners, which is an exercise I like to do a couple times a year. That's just a secret shopping exercise mm-hmm. um, where I pretend to be a prospect. And I'll do this myself because um, it helps me keep my saw sharp. Um, I will pretend to be a prospect. I'll go shopping. I'll look at competition. I'll look at our process. I'll sign up for our stuff. Um, I'll eavesdrop in on calls, right? And we have call recording. He's gone. So I'll listen to that. Um, to get an opinion about what the uh, new logo pursuit looks like. And then we also will take a look at, okay, on day two, after the customer signs, what happens? Do they get a welcome email? You know, uh, is their training set up? What happens in the training? And the first time that I did this audit, Casey, I was just so embarrassed. You know, the training content was talking about benefits of our product that did not match the promise that we had made in the sales cycle, right? right? It wasn't horribly off, but it was off by like a third. So you're kind of like, oh my God, right? Who wrote this? Uh, can we help? And our CEO asked me like, go stick your nose in this. And I was like, look, I'm not going to be popular if I stick yeah. my nose in <laughs> you're not gonna like business. And he's like, look, I want you to do it because I really want to understand. And that just made us much better. So that whole kind of secret shopping um, exercise is a really good one. The other piece about it is competitive knowledge. And I'm sure your listeners all have, you know, somebody or a team that looks at competition. And most of the time, the competition or the competitive analysis is looking at the products of Mm. the, of the other company and the pricing model and stuff like that. And that's great. But what about all of their marketing campaigning, right? And so I like to do, again, a couple times a year, an analysis of our key competitors that we're actually seeing in deals, as well as other companies that we admire um, that are in adjacent space. And just take a look, like, what does their website promise say? What are their core um, communication uh, messages? What techniques are they using? What Mm, shows are they sponsoring? What does their PR look like? and so on. And I'll even do like take a picture of all the home pages or, or different parts of the website just to kind of look across it because that's what your buyers are doing, right? They're experiencing this, uh, how do you even call it? Like this overwhelming flow of yeah. information. And you can really learn some things. Like a lot of companies make the same damn claim that you're making, right? So, yeah. okay, I need to make sure that I'm differentiated or. I remember one time we did this a couple summers ago. I had an intern do it and everybody's website looked very similar. Everyone was using that Salesforce blue color and, you know, using the same kind of messaging. And we happily have a very vibrant red as our core right. brand color. And, uh, and we really stood out and the other ones just looked like just homogeneous, right? So the, those sorts of exercises, I think are really interesting in bringing that forward. And I remember doing my first presentation with my team in front of the sales team and the product team doing this everything but product competitive mm-hmm. analysis. And they were just blown away. Like it hadn't occurred to them to go look at those things. And it's like, oh my God, we have to, because this is what the buyer sees. 
Yeah, I think there's a tendency you can get so wrapped up in your own bubble, you know, your own little mini ecosystem that it, it pays to go look. And, and I like how you said not just competitors, but companies you admire that are just kicking ass. You're like, what are they, what are they doing? Mm-hmm. And what color, what color are they using? What, what, what systems and what shows? I, I, I love that because it just gets you out of your own, you know, two feet by two feet, you know, cube or home office. It does. And it's such a great project, especially for somebody that's um, younger in their career. And, you know, the first time we did it was with an intern. And I remember she said to me, okay, so, so explain this assignment to me and whatever. And I was like, Stephanie, look, if you don't do this work, no one else is going to do it. So all I'm trying to do is replicate the experience of a shopper and you're perfect because you're new. You don't even know what to look at. So tell us what strikes your fancy and you know what do you think is different and she found really interesting nuances Casey like just the way that um, companies the language they were using Mm. how formal it was um, formal versus informal how did they use terminology Um, did they use people uh, images Um, how much did they show their product what was their use of video or not or other techniques it was just was really fascinating that sounds like a lot of great takeaways. Is this a magic intern that happens once a year? Like, or is this something that you were able to give her enough instructions to do that? Because that sounds like, I don't know yeah. if everyone would, I don't know if I, if you asked me to look at those, if I would come back with all those observations. Yeah. What, what we did was we kind of, she and I just sort of brainstormed mm. what outcome we were looking for. And then she just went crazy, went to wow. town. And then the day she gave her presentation, she'd blown up like, poster size, the homepage of all these companies. And it was just like, oh my God, this is crazy. Um, Since then, we have as a team done this about twice a year and we just divide up the work. So it's like, okay guys, here's the outcome we're looking for. Everybody take two companies Mm -hmm. and come back in a month. Um, And so sort of like you do it in your spare time type deal. And we kind of have a template of what we want to look at. And then we just present to each other. So that's the way we've operationalized it. It, it kind of makes the work less daunting because the first time around it was, you know, like a two month project for an intern and who wants to wait a year, you know? Right. Um, so doing it a little more frequently is better. Huh. Wow. Where, where does this all go? Where, what, what are you seeing coming down the line in the future and around the corner that we should keep our eyes on? Yeah. I mean, I, I we all knew that, uh, you know, acceleration to all things digital was happening anyway. Mm. But then I think within the COVID world where everything is remote, it's just dramatically accelerated. So we all need to be looking at our presence online, how easy we are to find. Um, and, and remembering that horrific stat that, you know, the buyer journey, like buyers 70% of the way through their journey before they make themselves known to you. They're anonymous for a really long time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we need to be figuring out ways to de-anonymize and incent that shopper to talk to us. Um, And so we're testing things like we've put conversational marketing into the mix. And I I really love that phrase versus calling it a chat bot. Um, And it is technically a chat bot. We use qualified, which integrates really well with Pardot. As you know, you guys have helped us set some of that up. Um, And, you know, they, they have educated us about the conversation and what they call experiences. So depending on where someone is on your website, they're going to have a different experience with that bot. And I, I hate the word bot because it implies robot and employ, implies this um, uh, antiseptic sort of um, uh, interaction. Yeah, and like it, a cold, it, it, unfeeling, 
unknowing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like what you get when you're like on, you know, online with Comcast and you're in their message tree. Right. Um, so, so what, what has changed is our SDRs are, are basically in the qualified console all day. They know when someone comes to the account and with reverse IP lookup and a number of other things, because reverse IP doesn't work so well when everyone's working from home. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's other ways that, um, qualified kind of triangulates in to figure out what account someone might be coming from. Um, we do a rapid account mapping to the SDR that owns that account. And then that SDR gets an alert. Hey, someone from Acme is on your website. Um, and so they're the ones that start the conversation. And, you know, and if it's a person who's returned again and again, and we've cookied them, um, and, and you're in our database, we even know that it's Casey coming from Cheshire. Um, and so that's really, really interesting when it works well. And even if we don't know who they are, it's just a better experience because we can more often than not engage that person into communicating with us when, and kind of coax them out of anonymity, mm-hmm. um, you know, and get conversations going started uh, sooner. That has led us to ungate more of our content. Um, so why not just make it available to everybody? And you know, if you if you realize that you can engage them in a conversation and capture their identifying information, you don't have to have a bloody form on top of everything on your site anymore. So we've started ungating. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also started unlocking the content that are that's in the PDFs. You know, like this ebook that I mentioned, unlocking revenue performance. We have taken all that content and put it on web pages. You can still download it in its pretty PDF form, of course. So you can, you know, send it around, but now we've unlocked it. So we get all that good SEO juice also. Um, and that has helped for, you know, findability and searchability. So those are some of the things we're seeing and it's, it's led to some weird circumstances, which I can talk about, um, that are kind of screwing up my metrics, but, um, but I'll pause there. Yeah, well, no, I just, the conversational marketing is is fascinating because it, it was such a reminder to think about how so much of our marketing reminds me of the military where it's like, hurry up and wait, right? Mm-hmm. Hurry up and fill out this form. And then you're going to wait a while, like not mm-hmm. a year, not a year company, but a lot of places that form gets filled out. A day, yeah. A day, or more. a week. You have to have a naughty list to get people to call them. Well, and then you get this back and forth like, hey, would Tuesday at 10 work? No, it wouldn't. And right. then you get that annoying link of like, you can book time with me here. It always feels yeah. kind of... Yeah, four emails just to confirm a time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As opposed to just right like then, right? Getting on Maybe the phone. just wanted mm-hmm. to chat then. It's like, well, click a button and to your point, like you hop right in a, in a meeting. And I know we've yeah. done a lot of those where people just, yeah, I'm actually, I have the time because that's why I'm researching this now. How about we chat? Great. And it's a little bit less threatening than let me call you on your cell and then yeah. I'm going to harass yeah. you later. It's like, cool. <laughs> How can I help? What kind, of, what kind of messes has that created in the funnel? I can only imagine in terms of people yeah, there's, skipping. There, and- yeah. So, so we talked about how people stay anonymous for a super long time. Um, uh, in three occasions now, uh, and just in the last couple of months, we've had this weird thing happen where the account is one that we're pursuing and we know people in that account. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's say the fifth person starts, comes in and they're totally anonymous and our SDR starts talking to them. They're not a lead. They've never been a lead, right? All of a sudden in that conversation, there's an opportunity there. And this person is key to that opportunity and the SDR opens up an op. So yay for us, right? Mm-hmm. We generated pipeline, but there's no lead history. You're like, okay, crap. 
right? <laughs> like, so I have no yeah, top of funnel nothing. metrics. You, you I have no really? conversion rate, right? The way I went from stranger to up. So I don't know what the hell this means, right? <laughs> Other right. than it's screwing up the metrics, but I'll take the pipeline, right? right. And so, you know, our way around it is um, Lisa, who runs uh, Demand Gen and Marketing Ops, which she's put in place as she's not only tracking marketing qualified leads, she's tracking conversations and, and conversion off of both. And just so we can see what happens. So like I said, it was only, it's only happened three times, but three times in two months and the deals were, you know, six figures uh, in terms of ops. So, um, so I don't know what this means, but it's, I think it's a good problem, but it's one that I'm warning, you know, our CFO and our CEO about because our metrics are looking kind of messy now. Um, but yet the pipeline's good. So, you know, we got to figure out what we're going to do. I'm dying to talk to other people about this. So if any of your listeners are starting to see this phenomenon, please reach out because I want to figure out, like, what do we do now? I think I've heard this, you know, this concept like a couple of times now, and we've experienced it too. And, and you're right. If you stay stuck in the metrics, you're going to look kind of like you're slacking off. But yet at the same time, people don't just magically come to your website to engage in a chat. They came from somewhere. And so I think a lot of the challenge has been, well, what was the source of them? And making sure that Qualified or any app you have doesn't make itself the source. Cause it's like, no, 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 you're, you're the conversion point, but where do they actually this come is from? a channel? Right. Yeah. And you know, How and you're making me think of this other thing, which is like, you can imagine a CMO being in a room, which is like, well, marketing, what do we need you for? People are just coming to us and they're ready to buy. They like, just, they just arrive. It's not true. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. They just like field of dreams. They just, you built it and they yeah. can't. Yeah. Totally, totally. That's the danger in, in a situation, especially if you have like an engineering led management team <laughs> that doesn't really appreciate marketing. Um, you, you're going to run into that problem. Those don't, those don't still exist, do they? <laughs> oh my God. They do. I, I have an allergic reaction to that kind of, you know, culture for, yeah. you know, for a bunch of reasons, mainly because they typically don't appreciate sales and marketing and, you know, think anyone can do it and field of dreams, right? The product is beautiful enough that it'll sell itself type stuff. And that, that kind of culture is just a difficult one. I've been in it before in my career and it's not one that I choose to return to. Yeah. I think I'd rather eat gluten than, uh, than yeah. to, uh, <laughs> to uh, work in a company. Life's too short, everyone. If you're listening and you work for, you can try, fight the battle, but then go find some place that appreciates marketing. I think I've seen some thought leaders say that too. Like, look, just go find a place that actually appreciates marketing. You're going to get a lot more done. And, you know, you know, there's one company where um, I had a conversation with someone. He said, oh yeah, we just uh, got rid of our marketing automation and we just got rid of our CRM. We're going back to Excel. So that my, my question was, so so you start looking for a new job now? He's like, no, oh, I'm going to stick it out. Like, don't that. stick it out. They're, that's let, them, let them go crazy and you go somewhere cutting edge and all that good stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Man, uh, you know, the, it's interesting with the stats too around you're, you're skipping a lot of the stages and getting right to it. I think this does make it more important now than ever that marketing and sales, I mean, saying they're aligned is so cliche sometimes, but they, if, they're, if they're that close, the closer they are, especially if SDR is a part, then it's not so much, you know, my points, your points, it's still around the pipeline. Yeah. And, and I think you got to just agree on one pipeline number. Yeah. Um, and that's what you align around. And, and every week when we meet with our sales team, sales leadership and marketing leadership, we take a look at where are we in pipeline against goal. We do keep track of who creates what, right? Like yeah. we, you know, uh, and, and in our company, 
historically the SDRs have created most of the pipeline, mm. um, which is good and bad, right? It's good because they're successful, but it's bad because Jill Rowley, an amazing thought leader in sales, she talks about people getting drunk on inbound. Um, and, you know, and then they just, they're not, their skills are not as sharp in sales anymore about how to initiate a conversation and how to prospect and so on. So I think that's what she means by that. Um, but, you know, increasingly our sellers are doing their own prospecting with a lot of help and structure for marketing in the example that we raised before. So we look at that all collectively together. Um, and it just feels much better because I've been in companies where it's like, well, marketing, you need to deliver 60% and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And then there's all this finger pointing and arguing about who gets credit for what. And it just, it wastes so much time. It really does. Like the conversations, the debate, you could be out there selling some more, creating more value for the customers, you know, doing all these projects we just talked about, or you could be having internal debating and fighting around credit and, and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. It's mm -hmm. Gross. Well, you know, we've worked together. Um, I've seen you speak. We're chatting now. But I would love to know, who are you? Like, can you, can you take us back in time? You're like little Tracy days and because of you know, share your story with us. Did you always know you're going to be a marketer and, and yeah. uh, that go? Um, yeah. And I, I want to set one record straight when you in, introduced me and you mentioned the most feared thing. That was when I was in college and I was in a sorority at the University of Michigan, Tri-Delts. And um, I was house manager my um, junior year. And there were 60 girls that lived in the house. Uh, and it was a really old house. And we mm -hmm. had a lot of maintenance problems. And, um, and so I was most feared because I had I had rules about you know, <laughs> what you were allowed to do and not do. And so that's where that boat came from. And I have it buried in my LinkedIn profile. So when, just for fun, right. To see if people notice it. Um, you know, my origin story is, is kind of basic. Honestly, I'm the oldest of seven kids. Wow. My mom was an emergency room nurse. Um, and, uh, and my dad was a PR executive. And so I grew up with this sort of eclectic, balance. And, you know, my dad did a lot of advertising and PR. And I remember him bringing home like storyboards for ad campaigns. And once wow. I was a little girl, he took me to a focus group. And it was one of those kind of old fashioned ones with the one way mirror. And no you, kidding. Know, you, you provide the audience with like candy and they see a presentation of messaging and whatever. And I just thought that was really cool. And then I remember when I was, I think I was in fifth grade and um, we were living in Minneapolis and my dad was working for Honeywell Aerospace. Mm -hmm. And he was a PR spokesperson. And um, there had been a break-in at one of their manufacturing plants. And there was all of these um, uh, uh, chemicals and other things nice. that were dangerous, right? And some of them had been stolen. And so there was this big story about like, oh my God, what does this mean to community safety? And, you know, did, did you know, who broke in and what were they trying to do with this stuff? And, right. um, and so my dad, as spokesperson was on the phone all weekend with reporters and, you know, this was like 1977 or something like that. We had, you know, the avocado green wallpaper and the slimline <laughs> phone with like the twisty, long, yeah. twisty 20 foot, you know, um, cord and stuff. And I was really interested in it. And I, I remember saying to him like, daddy, can I listen? And he's like, yeah, you sit there, don't say a word. And he paced back and forth and took call after call from reporters and just kept saying the same thing again and again and again about, you know, what they knew about it and the state, you know, that the community was not at risk and all this other stuff. And I remember when it was over, I, he was like, what do you think? And I'm like, 
you just said the same thing again and again and again, like 20 times. Like, what was that? And he's like, that was consistency of message. Like, that's the thing that needs to be done, right? And you need to have a talk track and you need to anticipate the questions. And then the next day when the newspaper came out, he, he was referred to in a bunch of different articles, but his name was never used. It was like a spokesman for... Um, you know, Honeywell Aerospace said, and I was like, but dad, why didn't they say, you know, Larry Eiler? And he's like, I'm the spokesperson. This is about Honeywell, the brand. It's not about me. You know, this is normal. And I was just got really intrigued, um, you know, by all of that. So, you know, that led to um, my first, you know, I had a lot of different, you know, jobs, like everybody has mowing lawns and babysitting and junk like that. Sure. My first actual work job was I was an SDR um, when I was 16 years old. And my dad was working for a software company called Comshare. This is in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And they had a small team of high school kids that did lead follow-up. Now, we weren't called SDRs at the time. There wasn't even CRM. There wasn't even the internet. This was like 1982 or something. And we all went by the same name, um, pseudonym, Chris Kelly. And um, the company did a lot of print advertising. And uh, we got a lot of inbound leads over the 800 number. And then sometimes business reply cards, which I don't even know if they exist anymore. But business reply cards would be inside of a magazine, like say, yeah. a trade magazine. And you'd rip it out and you'd fill it out and you'd mail it into the company. And then you'd get information back. So talk about like a slow process. Uh, yeah. But we got a lot of leads that way. So, um, so that really taught me like, oh my gosh, there are business people with pain that are shopping. And this is like Mm. a weird way that they do it. And then, you know, how we followed up and then how those turned into customers was just something I got really interested in. And, um, you know, that led to me eventually getting my first job in marketing right after I graduated. And I, you know, at Michigan, I studied sociology, which truthfully was the fastest major I could finish. I had six brothers and sisters behind me that needed that tuition money. So, you know, um, finish it uh, just four years. I mean, I did your standard four years, but, um, but social to me ended up being a really good thing when I look back at it, because it's just all about what makes people believe things and do things, which is what marketing is about. Right. So yeah, it's turned me into a lifelong learner about behavior and motivation and, and things of that nature. It's funny, isn't that what, yeah, to your point, what marketing is all about. So it's almost like that, you know, so many people that are in marketing these days, that, that was not their background. Their background was something, geology, or but in this case, like sociology, I, I can only imagine. Do you, do you recall any takeaways or lessons from that? Or is it just kind of like- I do. I, I, I think of a lot of them. Um, yeah. Propaganda is a big one, yeah. which is certainly an interesting thing to look at in today's political environment. Like, how do you get people to believe something? And, you know, you can do it for good and you can do it for evil. And there's techniques, you know, that work, you know, for both outcomes. Um, Repetition of message and clarity of message. That's a huge one. I mean, when you go back and you look at past political movements and, um, and you know, just all kinds of different um, campaigns. World War II, I mean, that was an amazing time of propaganda to get, you know, Americans to get behind the war effort and right. make sacrifice. Like those were some takeaways. But another one was from the anthropology class um, and famous anthropologist, Margaret Mead, remember reading about her? Um, she had a, this really interesting phenomenon and I'm going to get the term wrong, but it's basically the, um, the, uh, the effect that she had on indigenous tribes that she was studying, right? Just, but the fact that she was there changed their behavior. So 
you know, you think about like adding into adding in a dimension into a community and what that does. And I think my last one is all of your listeners, I'm sure, took a psychology class at some point and you learn about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Do you remember that? Yeah. Triangle where at the bottom it's food and shelter and at the very tippy top it's self-actualization. I have used that um, that notion time and again, not only with my own teams internally, but when we're thinking about the customer, like, okay, this product that we're selling, is it a painkiller or a vitamin? Like you hear right. a lot of people use that phrase. Well, are we food and shelter or are we something that's beyond that, right? right. And if your food and shelter is not there, you're never going to get higher. It's a little bit like that idea of if your new customer doesn't get deployed and get the value out, the food and shelter out of what you've sold them, you're never going to move up the hierarchy, right? You're not going to earn that right. Um, I also use Maslow's hierarchy when we're talking about just inside the marketing team, what kind of program we're trying to take on. And, you know, sometimes someone will have an idea that's like a really super fancy self-actualized idea. And there's no way in hell we're going to be able to execute it because, you know, the food and shelter is like not there. Like, for example, dirty data, right? Like you have super dirty data, you can't do the rest. So, so those are some of the things. And I just, I, I read a lot. I follow a lot of really interesting people on social media. So I'm just always kind of thinking about culture and politics and Mm -hmm. belief systems and segments. And I don't know, I'm, I'm a dork that way. Like I, I, I'm just constantly studying. Yeah. I, you know, that, that's what keeps you growing though in chat. And you never know where the, I mean, I love these different subjects. Like you never know where the, the inspiration comes from for a new campaign or just like making the decision between this and that harking back to some lesson you learned, you know, a few years ago, it's just like, Oh, that's it. And you think about applying techniques to techniques, like I'm a big fan of Hamilton, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners yeah. are. And you just think about applying hip hop and musical theater to the story of one of our founding fathers. It's just like that sort of burst of alchemy that uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda had that is very inspirational to me. It's like, okay, well, how can we mix it up? Like, for example, I have a, an event coming up that I'm doing with Women in Revenue, and we've hired a DJ to do a warm up 30 minutes before the whole thing starts. And like that kind of thing is just fun, right? Like, why yeah. not do something like that to get the energy going, you know, to make up for the fact that everybody's distant right now? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can get inspiration in a lot of places. Yeah, you really can. Um, it, yeah, the, the Hamilton thing when that came out, had, had to scoop that up. I hadn't seen it yet, so it was great to scoop it up on this Disney Plus. And yeah, what an interesting combination. I, I don't know who said it, but someone said like, there's no unique ideas. There's only unique combinations. You know, it's like the combination of this and that, and this and that. That's really where the, the masterpieces come from. And that's what we're here for. Um, I think that's women, well said. Yeah. Yeah. Women in Revenue. When did that start? Because I know you, your founding member, yeah. really a champion for that whole cause. Like, yeah. Tw- so fall of 2018. Okay. Um, so we'll be two years old in November of this year. Congrats. Um, yeah, it's really exciting, Casey. We're up to 2,600 members, Jeez. which I just in a million years did not expect. Um, and the, the origin story is essentially um, uh, a woman named Sherry Johnston, who is a consultant with a great firm called Winning by Design. She saw this gap, which was, gosh, there, you know, there are increasing numbers of organizations for women in STEM jobs, girls who code, you know, things for women that are in engineering, but what about women in sales and marketing? And there's lots of marketing organizations that are really great, but nothing that was specific to women 
in mm. revenue roles, sales, marketing, customer success, and so on. So she reached out to a collection of women mm. with a pitch that said, hey, join me. Let's put together a nonprofit organization that's going to deliver benefit to this population of women in sales, marketing, and customer success. You know, please join me. So we got together. We decided that we wanted to create networking and mentorship opportunities. And we, you know, we started with, I think by the end of that year, there was about 100 members. And then the following summer, we were at about 800. And then since wow. this year, especially with COVID lockdown, membership has just exploded, which I'm very grateful for. You know, we started out as a primarily Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area group, and our mm-hmm. meetings were local here. But now our virtual events, there's people from all over the world that are joining, primarily North America. Um, but 2,600 members, it's really exciting. And women are networking with each other. We have a thriving mentor program. And, and call to action for your listeners. I am sure there are many people that would be fabulous mentors. Oh, um, and, you know, you don't have to have 30 years experience to be a mentor. You just need to have some belief or expertise on a topic. Like, let's say you're an awesome field marketer or, you know, great marketing ops person. You could sign up to be a mentor and coach other women in a very lightweight way. Like we do these one-to-many events where you might sign up as a mentor to do, let's say, two sessions on the best marketing ops metrics and, you know, 10 women will sign up in this Zoom interactive format and, you know, you'll share your beliefs. Um, We also have a very active Slack community. So, you know, membership is free. So people can just go to womenandrevenue.org, sign up to become a member. You'll get invited to the Slack. About 900 members are active in Slack on a variety of channels. Our next event is September That's a lot of people on a Slack channel. That's amazing. It's cool. It's really cool. Um, And people are looking for job opportunities. They're sharing best practices, um, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So our next event is uh, is about diversity and revenue and how we can take charge and drive change in our own companies. And so I'm, I'm just finishing working on the slate of speakers and we're starting our promotion this week. Okay, cool. We'll have to link to that down below. Why do you suppose this has just taken off so, so quickly? You know, I, I think that, um, you know, women are natural networkers, no question. Mm. Um, I think they really want to share their stories in a safe space. Um, and, you know, the women that are joining are very like-minded, you know, they want to advance their careers, but they also want to help other women. About half the members are individual contributors, you know, kind of first five, 10 years of their career. And then the other half are women like me that are, you know, director level and above that want to give back, um, but that also don't want to be the only woman anymore. And Mm -hmm. there's so many organizations where, you know, you look in the East app and you're one of nine people and you're the only woman. And it just feels gross, right? And, you know, I've had the opportunity at Inside View our CEO, Umberto Maletti, was very intentional about recruiting women into the company and women in leadership. And we're 50-50, which is unbelievable. Like, I don't really know any other companies that are like that. And it really changes his dynamic. And we get a better result with diversity of thought. And of course, yeah. diversity is not just gender related. Mm-hmm. Um, racial diversity is really important. Diversity of background is really important. Um, and so kind of teaching our audience um, about those different elements and then helping them understand what they can do in their companies, whether it's an employee resource group or a different way of recruiting, um, unconscious bias training. There's lots of things, um, that we can do. Yeah. I was having some really interesting conversations. Um, I think it was last week, even, uh, Chantelle Marcel. I don't know if you've met her, um, Mm -hmm. amazing LinkedIn thought leader, just very active. Um, but she was bringing up the idea of just that 
it actually became very coherent for me around diversity and how do you not walk a cliff? And we were talking about all the different companies that take all the things that are happening now in society and they like completely mess up the message and it looks either abusive or it looks like you're just trying to, you know, get something out of this tragedy here and there, right? And she was like, if you had diversity of the, just the types of people you mentioned, experiences, race, like gender, all these things, then you're more likely to have someone on your team that goes, that sounds like a terrible idea as opposed to just everyone being like, yeah, yeah, totally. yeah go team. Yeah, like, this totally. sounds great. You know, you need that. Yeah. The weakness that we have is that, you know, in tech, we are dominated by white people, let's face mm. it, um, you know, with probably Asian and Indian population being next. And, you know, for us to be talking about support for Black Lives Matter, but not having anybody Black <laughs> saying it on our behalf in our team and advising us is just stupid, right? Like, right. it's so easy to tokenize. It's so easy to be tone deaf. So in putting together this program that I'm talking about for um, September 10th, you know, I recruited a variety of speakers and I'm getting out of the way, right? And yeah. there's, you know, five women, four women are, four of them are of color. One of them is, is a proponent of hiring formerly incarcerated people. Like it's a, a really great blend. And then I just need to get the hell out of the way. Right. Um, yeah. And, you know, and, and push them onto the stage to educate and have a voice. So, um, you know, I, there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of sensitivity. I'm just so happy that things are where they are. You know, I come from a multiracial family um, and I'm in a multiracial family now. And, awesome. and it, so I, I have a different, um, I have a front row seat. Let's just put it that way to what, you know, I have three sisters who are, are black. My husband's black. I have a front row seat to, you know, what they are faced with all the mm. time, you know? And so I feel um, gift. I feel grateful to, have that perspective um, and, you know, and to be able to uh, support them and then, you know, share with others what I have come to learn, um, right. you know, from those relationships. Well, you would certainly be the person to bring that group of 10 different people together. It's very humble of you to then like back away and let them all talk. But I mean, your experiences are, are powerful as well. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm at the point of my career now where it's like my time to make space for others. Like I'm really motivated yeah. in helping people grow. And, and if I can, take the spotlight and push it over here to another person that is going to shine. Like I just, I get a lot out of that. Agreed. Agreed. You mentioned the mentorship too with women mm. tech and just any, any chance you have, I've, I've started getting more and more into that and have found it, you know, immensely rewarding because sometimes there are questions you just like with data, you just take some things for granted that doesn't everyone yeah, know? I mean, Casey, no, you'd be don't. an amazing mentor. Like, you know, you're a business owner, right? Mm. Very successful business. So you have that entrepreneurial angle, but you're also in marketing and in, and right. in helping companies really thrive operationally. So there's that aspect of it. Like there's a lot of things I think you could probably give if you had a little bit of time. So I'm just going to ask you if you'd look at, think, think about it. Oh, I'd love to, for sure. Yeah. I, you know, it's all, it's all a matter of finding people that will follow up and send the email. And then, you know, it's, it's uh -huh. those people that like, will will keep doing it. There's so much value for them, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I'm happy to take part and help however I can. So a uh, hypothetical question for you. I may or may not have a time machine here in Nashua, New Hampshire, <laughs> in my backyard, covered up with a tarp. You're in Nashua? I am. What? So you got to explain that to me because you're an Atlanta guy. No, I'm, I've always been in New Hampshire. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah. Why? I, wow. Boy, do I feel stupid. No, I thought that fine. you were always in Atlanta. No, I, I love Nashville, New, New Hampshire. Hampshire. It's so beautiful. It is. 
And means. you don't have state tax. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no income tax, no sales tax, no anything else. It's just a fantastic place. Um, and it's not as Time hot machine. in Hotlanta. Yeah. You know? Oh, God, yeah. Um, you know, real quick sidetrack. Every year I tend to, on, on Facebook, I will say that I'm moving to Atlanta, but it's usually on April 1st. So usually April Fools, I always say that I'm moving to Atlanta. I fell for it. And then uh, over time, that I've had people, how is Atlanta? <laughs> um, but I don't know if that was it or just you know, because Pardot is from Atlanta and you just... You it assume. must be. It must have just yeah. been that association. I've thought about it. I've skydived down there before. I like that place, but I love coming back to New Hampshire. So this is where the time machine's at. COVID's done. We'll clean the machine off, get the squirrels off of it. And you can use it. And it's interesting though, it only goes back in time to a certain place. It's about a couple of days after you've graduated from school. And you can go back and you see yourself and you can talk to yourself. What kind of advice would you give yourself knowing all these things that you've gone through and seen and done? Man, I would tell her um, to trust her gut with more conviction. You know, every mistake I have made personally and professionally. I have ignored that inner voice. And she was there. She told me, don't do that thing. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, this, you know, program is a dumb idea. Or don't marry that guy. Right. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. All those things. That guy's kind of creepy. I, Yo, he's, he's growing on me. No, no, no. He's a creep, sir. Move on. <laughs> I, you know, and I squashed it out. Um, you know, in the work examples, mm. I have so often worked in male-dominated environments and where the men had financial and or engineering backgrounds. So super logical, mm. really mathematical. And I'm a words person. Like, right. don't get me wrong. I can hang with metrics any day, but my natural gravitation is words and their meaning and things of that nature. So I have a gut feeling about something. I don't have the data to back it up yet. And so if I are to bring it forward, I'd get really challenged, right, by these very mathematically engineering oriented people who would be, you know, basically pick apart my gut feeling, which I mean, the point of a gut feeling is it's intuition based, right? And, you know, yes, it's based on your experience, but the, there's often elements to it that you just can't put your finger on. It's almost spiritual in a way. Yeah. Um, and so I would just ignore her voice. I would just push it away. I wouldn't even bring it up. And then, damn, nine times out of 10, you know, three days later, the thing that I said, in my voice, what happened, happened. And, you know, it just happened again and again and again. And, and as, as I matured in my career, um, and I started learning techniques for, you know, proving a hypothesis or disproving a hypothesis that was coming out in gut feel, I just speak up, you know, more readily. And now I'm at the point where I might be in a meeting with our e-staff and some idea comes up and I will just say like, guys, I don't get it. I don't have a good feeling about this. I cannot tell you why. I cannot prove why every bone in my body is saying don't or right. do, you know, um, it's going to come to me, but I'm telling you, this is not good or this is good. Um, and so that's the voice, you know, I would tell her really trust that gut, listen to her, nurture it. Um, and, and, you know, and just keep track of, um, when you do feel like you want to push it down, like recognize that behavior and, and think about it. Uh, it's powerful powerful stuff. And, and I, I can relate to you mentioning dealing with, and not even, not even as a woman, but just dealing with the engineering, the yes. logical, how do you deal with those people, especially when they're in charge of you? 
where they're in power. Yeah, situations. it's challenging, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, I first seek to understand, right? That's okay. always just the best practice. Seek to understand, yeah. find out where it comes from. Uh, definitely try and bring some data um, yeah. so that you can show that you honor that way of thinking. Um, but then also just try and show them your way of thinking um, and, and how you're getting to a conclusion. Like, for example, um, I'm a huge student of body language. I always have been. And I find, I'm going to stereotype, but I find that people that tend to be more mathematical, more engineering driven are not always as good. At, at that skill of reading a room, right? Or, and right. it's even harder now on Zoom, for God's sake, right? Where we're distant. Um, and showing them what I see. So for example, it might be in a, uh, let's use a, an example where um, we were meeting with a prospect and, you know, they had brought their executives and, you know, we're doing the, the usual dog and pony mm-hmm. And all signs are pointing to this deal closing, right? It's, it's BANT qualified. There's budget right. authority. There's a timeline. Everyone's smiling. They leave. And I know there's no way in hell we're going to get that deal. And like, wow. why do I know that, right? And it's, it's, it's all subtle stuff, right? It's mm. who wrote, you know, how did they write things down? What questions did they ask? Did they look bored? Were they unengaged? you know, all kinds of things like that, that I will then say, Hey, here's all the things I saw. And, you know, and then you'll, you'll get your, in this case, our engineering leader, like, Oh my God, I totally missed that. And then, you know, the more that you talk about it, the more they realize like, Oh yeah, those really were signs. And as it turns out, you know, we got a no, eventually Mm -hmm. we got a yes, uh, in that particular deal. But, but I was right, you know, like they're looking at us saying yes. And there's just no way it was going to happen. I'm with you on the words matter type analyzing the words and um, and it's maybe because you're able to observe the conversation, you know, alongside them, be able to say, no, actually that word is only used in this kind of, there's a feeling behind the word mm-hmm. choices and because you chose that, that's interesting. And I like, mm-hmm. I'm with you. I like to feel like wordsmith listening in the words are almost like their own version of body language, you know, like mm-hmm. the different words you use tend to indicate something about you or how you feel or think mm-hmm. maybe we're just nerds yeah. i don't know oh i'm a super nerd <laughs> I, like, I geek out on words i have this really strange um ability to spot typos um wow. like it's almost like the movie the beautiful mind right where yeah. you know or someone that is um i have two nephews that are on the autism spectrum and they are like amazing mm. with numbers you will see a pattern and like that no one would ever see. And I could open up, let's just say it's like an ebook and I'm proofreading it and I will find a typo. Like it literally, like, it's just like my eye goes right to it. There's just <laughs> something like the way my brain is wired. It's really weird. You know, it, maybe it was just put there just for you to get you engaged. Maybe there's a meta behind <laughs> it, right? <laughs> if we, if I, you know, next email I send you, if I have a typo, you have uh-huh. to wonder now, was that on purpose? On the typo. Yeah, trying totally. to get your attention in the opening paragraph. <laughs> Man, it, what is this? I heard you are a musical theater geek as well, like me. I in am. college, you were, we did a lot of shows. Um, so it was mostly high school. Okay. And I was in this group that had the worst name ever. Um, that was like Glee, you know, and sure. Glee was popular on TV. But our, our group was called Shabob Shop. Shabob Shop. Shabab shop and shop was spelled S H O P P E. So Shabab shop. And it was 16 kids. And, uh, and we did, um, show tunes basically. And it was choreographed and we yep. had these 
really slick, shiny purple shirts that someone's mom made because that was our school color, purple <laughs> and white, polyester vests and skirts. Um, and it was really fun, you know. Um, uh, you know, we did all what you'd expect, you know, we'd perform community events and, and things yeah. like that. Um, but I learned a lot. I learned a lot about being on stage and using my body. And I learned about my voice and, um, and how to project. And like, yeah. all of those things are so helpful now. Oh, yeah. um, and, you know, and there's, I know a lot of show tunes and, you know, I can pretty much come up with a show tune. For Is this the part where you sing one on air? Is that where? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. The other night, my husband secretly, he'd be really mad for me to talk about this, but he did something similar when he was in um, high school. Nice. And we were joking around about jazz hands, right? And Yes. Um, and like the derby top hat thing and, and all of that. And we were listening to, um, it was a, uh, it was Shaka Khan's version of a song from Cabaret. I'm going to have to look it up wow. and send it to you. It was the bomb. It was so, so good. Well, we'll put it in the uh, show notes too. Cause everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. It actually was sweet charity. It was sweet charity. It was a song from sweet charity and Shaka Khan did a version and we were goofing around on Pandora and we found it. And then we were doing our choreography in the kitchen. It was pretty fun. Oh, that's awesome. You know, that's, that's how my wife and I met too. Was is that an audition oh, yeah? for theater? Yeah. No way. What was the show? Um, it was just, it was just like murder mystery at, at, our, at uh-huh. our school. And, and I saw her writing her name down and she had the same initials I did. So I was like, Oh, you have the same initials that I do. And that was oh, my pickup line, I guess. Nice but opening line. Now we're married with two kids. So, you know, go figure. And did you both get in the show? Uh, we did. <laughs> yeah. mm. We did. I was this, this French playboy who would hit on everybody on stage, which is like the best part. You know, to add, you could add. Totally fine. Totally uh, fine. Yeah, it was fun. Favorite musical? Oh, man. It would have to be Hamilton, honestly. Now, um, we've seen it five times on stage, I'm embarrassed to say, both in New York and San Francisco. Um, Definitely Hamilton. But I think before that, it has to be The Sound of Music, honestly. Like, I just fell in love with that when I was a little girl. I've watched it so many times. You know, it's, it's a good movie. It really it is. It is a good movie. It's a beautiful movie. It's beautiful. Yeah. And um, do you know, I don't know if you remember the boat scene. Do you remember that boat scene when they're on the boat and they all wave and then the boat tips Oh, over? yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I saw a behind the scenes show where it said that um, that was choreographed. It was supposed to happen. But when they, when they tipped, it tipped backwards. It was supposed to tip forward. <laughs> and one of like the little girls couldn't swim. So they oh, were no. all like grabbing for, they all, everything was fine afterward. But like, that was like a real... Because it really did look like mayhem. And they were wearing those outfits that she yeah, made out of the Yeah, it really was mayhem. So it, it worked uh-huh. out well for the, the show. Play clothes. They, were like, they were like, oh, grab little, whatever her name is. <laughs> yeah, well, that was Gretel was the little Gretel, yeah. And then Gre- Marta, Marta was the next oldest one. And Brigitte was the next oldest oh, you one. Got all the names, oh, yeah, dude. We used to play Sound of Music on my front porch when I was a little girl. Um, and I was always Liesl and I didn't need a governess. That was her big line. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's almost like I wish they would make clothes out of curtains like that, just so for the super geeks in us, we could be like, oh, nice outfit, Casey. Where'd your Dreamforce, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, we're in my curtains. Yeah, well, listen, when Dreamforce comes back as a live event, I will meet you there. We, we, can, we can coordinate our uh, yes. hideously patterned outfits. That would be good. Yes, we can have curtain outfits. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, hey, where can people connect with you if they want to reach out to you? Um, throw out your information also um, your women in tech inside view all yeah the so there's a bunch of ways so um, yeah. so I'm CMO at inside view so it's easy tracy.eiler at inside view um, I'm active on LinkedIn so you can just find me there my last name's E-I-L-E-R it's a little bit of a weird spelling 
Um, and I, I'd say I'm fairly active on Twitter. So that's another place to connect. Um, and, and then womeninrevenue.org um, is a great place to, uh, to find me and interact. Excellent. Excellent. Well, this has been so much fun. We finally made it happen and I've enjoyed I'm every excited. moment of it. Me too. It's been really enjoyable. It's been you a great highlight. You know how the just like morphed by? Like what is Totally. Happened? I know. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. Well, Finally thank you, Casey, show. so much. And thank you for being just such a great partner. Um, yeah. You know, your organization has helped us so much kind of get our, you know, our vision into reality. Oh, for sure. And I think it's, you know, entirely mutual as well because it's been great to have and there's partnerships where it's like a lead gen channel, but then there's like yeah. real partnerships where you're both creating value for each other. And that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what I feel like this is. So uh, now one quick note for the people listening, if you've learned something and I know you have, I guarantee you have, because I literally have two pages of notes over here, front and back. Um, share this with someone. LinkedIn's a great place for that, but don't just share a link. Put your takeaways. And there's so many takeaways in conversational marketing, the power of subscription, Oh, data, 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 data. It's not yeah, as hard please as Please tell me things, yes. right? Like, especially that whole issue of people jumping into the funnel, you know, yeah. staying anonymous. Like, I really want to know, is this a thing that's happening? Is it just a fluke or does it look for real? And then what the heck are we going to do about it as marketers? Like, we've got to figure out a way uh, to measure this because it puts us at risk a little bit, right? It screws up all of our value metrics. Um, and, uh, but I think it's a really interesting phenomenon. It is. It is. So reach out, share, contact, tag people. We'll hop in the conversation. And that's how you show thought leadership. It's not, yes. not as hard as it sounds. You just put out those thoughts and, uh, and, t- and everything explodes from there and you'll, you'll see. So again, Tracy, thank you so much for coming on here. Thanks for the invitation, Casey. All right. Well, for those listening, this has been the Hardcore Marketing Show. We'll catch you all next time. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.